0: My wife is a 10 and I'm a three, which you now know. Um, so I couldn't be more grateful for the company to give me my, that My girlfriend's the same way. I'm a three, she's a 10, so, so it's all good. They should meet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How the f- did you get that job? Uh, mine says to remain in harmony, you have to be balanced. I would say I could use a little bit more sleep to be a little bit more balanced right now, but we're doing all right. So how the fuck did you get that job? All right, before we get started, I have to thank our sponsor that makes this possible of how the fuck did you get that job? Open Fortune. Open Fortune created the world's most creative ad canvas through something you know and love, the Fortune Cookie. They created relationships with over 47,000 restaurants, the ones you eat at, and are able to give brands a golden ticket to reach their consumers when they're about to feast. So shout out to Open Fortune for making this possible and uh, getting us on this beautiful yacht today. From starting with AT&T as a developer and to reimagining luxury travel with Citigroup to enhancing legal research experiences with LexisNexis, our next guest has showcased an impressive knack for transformational marketing. Nick Carat has effortlessly transitioned through roles from corporate avenues like Citigroup to dynamic startups like The Ladders and Plated, landing his first CMO role at and Branch where premium betting met his marketing genius. He has since continued to climb. Now at the helm of Tommy John as their CMO, he's setting the new standards for comfort and fashion. So Nick, with such a diverse and impactful journey, I've got to ask, how the fuck did you get that job?
1: Well, thank you for having me, David. I appreciate it. Uh, you've got a successful podcast, and we're on a yacht in Miami. So if I could flip the table, how the fuck did you get this job?
0: Oh, that's not the first time I got that. We'll make it. This one's about you. So, we'll, we'll, but we can we can riff for a little bit because uh, talking about yourself is always fun. I was running my own company at the time with my old co-founder, and we were taking people out to dinner, and one, dinner got really expensive in New York City. And two, people were like busy and would cancel, and then three, the world shut down. So we were like, hey, we own a production company. What if we created a podcast called How the Fuck Did You Get That Job? And we both looked at each other and we were like, nah, that's stupid. And then we woke up the next morning and they were like, fuck it, like, let's do it. Everybody's shut down, and we recorded about three a week for a year and got above uh, 100 episodes started people started to see our posts and got 155 star ratings and people were like oh like we're good at this but the first couple were very funny because it was hilarious because our first interview was like me interviewing him and then him interviewing me and then we got a couple of buddies who were like just like couldn't say no to us and uh had a lot of fun with it and then we started getting some real guests like yourself and then uh, I became the CMO of Open Fortune and then they were like, hey, like we love your podcast so much. We love what it stands for. Like, let's let's sponsor it. Let's make it happen. And that was it. And been ripping and roaring and interviewing awesome people. And I feel like I've just learned a lot from it because everybody, I'm. we're going to touch on yours, but like, every, nobody's got a linear path. Everybody is, you know, just doing things differently and kind of like lateral movement. So. I want to. I know we we're speaking about lateral movement. I want to turn the table back on you. You started out right out of college, right, working for AT and T. What did that look like, and how'd you get that job?
1: Yeah, well, uh, taking a step back, I've uh, I've been doing what I love, which is marketing in the city that I love, New York City, for for over 25 years. So, as we discussed, about the first half of my career was at two blue chip companies, AT and T and Citigroup and the second half of my career has been at like, founder-led startups, which is my new passion, and I love it. I love what I do. I love the teams I get to work with, and it's great. But lateral mobility, which you and I talked about, I think is one of the most important things to what get. Is, what does lateral mobility mean? Yeah, so look, you graduate from college. I think all of us, it's intrinsic to want to move up the ladder. I want a higher title. I want more pay. So lateral mobility... And that'll make me happy. That'll make me happy, right? I, I want to, I'm smarter than my boss, I want to move up, I want to get paid more, that'll cure everything. I'll have a nicer car, I'll yeah. look, look better. I won't have any anxiety anymore, it'll, right. it'll, be, it'll all be gone. But the career is a long game. Yeah. So what I mean by lateral mobility, and this is advice that I got in my 20s, coming out of college, you might not know exactly what it is you want to do, and I fell into that camp. So, you know, in high school, a guidance counselor says, hey, you're, you're good at math, Nick, you should be an engineer or developer. I got a math degree, I was a developer, come out of college, and was fortunate to get a job at AT&T coding all day. And about six weeks into that, I realized like, I hated what I was doing. I had my headsets on, we were coding, didn't dig it, didn't love it. And uh, put in my time, put in about two years at AT&T, and then after that, I looked for other jobs. And I, couldn't, I could have moved up on the technical ladder, but I chose to move sideways into a marketing role. So that lateral mobility that you don't get at a small company and you do get at a big company, Something you need to take advantage. of. Absolutely,
0: I want to talk about that as well. But before we get in, what was your dream job as a kid? Uh, playing center field for the Yankees. What was there a moment when you realized that that wasn't gonna
1: that it happened, or is the is the dream still alive? Uh, the dream is is not alive anymore, okay. unfortunately. So, so when the scholarship offers were uh, not coming into my mailbox, I realized it was time to go get a real job. But I've always had a passion for sports, and I think sports has always been with me for the journey. It's part of our family's culture. I love sports. Um, I just won't be making money with my glove or my bat. There you go.
0: I w- also, I want to talk to you about how did Whitney Houston change your career?
1: <laughs> so, uh, so as I mentioned, I started out for a few years as a developer at AT&T and I was coding. And uh, I started to go to a few after-hour parties at AT&T. I met folks in the advertising group. We called it MarCom at, at AT&T. And someone in the group, uh, one of my friends that I met there said, hey, we haven't announced it yet in the company, but we're gonna bring in Whitney Houston and we're filming a commercial. Essentially, Whitney Houston singing over a phone line. The name of the TV campaign was called True Voice. Uh, I'm assuming you could Google it and find that. Mm-hmm. But I remember just being fascinated. I tried to talk my way onto the set and they said, no, sorry. But he said, hey, since you're a developer, if you could build in some codes that show the number of people walking into an AT&T store, the number of calls made, and I'll show you TV media plan and if you could build essentially what was called back then an attribution model like you could make me look good and I'll teach you a little something about advertising and marketing while that was self-serving for for my friend that really got me in the door into marketing and advertising and uh, I never looked back from that. Very cool that's awesome so
0: like was there one moment when you realized like I'm I'm good at this like I have a knack for it and like I
1: enjoy it. Yeah on the marketing side you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, I think there was a transition um, over time. We, we went from the Mad Men era to like the Math Men era, and that's sure. not a gender-friendly phrase, yeah. but essentially you saw that moment. And I did start to see... People I, that, started playing money ball with the brands. That's exactly right. So I, I was at AT&T for eight years, and toward the end I started to see the CMOs that I had a privilege to work for and under. They were getting a little bit tripped up when we were looking at things like return on ad spend and more of the quantitative folks in the room were being listened to and heard. So that was the moment where I didn't have the traditional CMO training or background. Um, That's when I knew sort of the quantitative folks in the room were speaking up and the CMOs who came in through the sales track were taking a back seat. So that's when I knew that my background was positioning me well for a future as a marketer. Absolutely.
0: Did you, were you there when they had the first, AT&T had the first online banner ad or no? (laughs) Uh, That was in the late 90s, I was, I was there. What was you're, You're dating me now. I didn't mean to t- toss you out like that, but I, I find that so fascinating. Uh, to give context to our viewers, I believe it was on net.com. Yep. Uh, first banner I had ever, and it had a 44, 45% click-through rate, which is bonkers. If you know anything about marketing and click-through rates, you'd say 1% would be you're stoked, right? Yep. What did that conversation, were you involved in those conversations? Or like what did that look like when you're like, hey, like we're going to do this thing that's kind of crazy. And the ad literally, if you look it up, We'll put it in the video uh, online right here. But like, as like,
1: click this ad or something. That was the yeah. copy. Yeah. So I wasn't in the room. I was still too junior, and that yeah. was a decision. Believe it or not, made at the at the top. It was a big bold move. So uh, it's funny those early days of any marketing on the internet. We were celebrating the moments where we had the action. Hey, we did an ad on the internet, which was similar to hey, we ran a Super Bowl commercial. Then over the course of the next few years. The conversations shifted from "Hey, we did this marketing activity," to "What's the outcome?" So anyone could have put that ad out there. So we give credit to AT and T, yeah. and we deserve that credit to being yeah. being the first to go through the starting the wall. trend. Yeah. But now it's around. Hey, it's cool to be first, but what's the benefit back to the business, back to the brand of doing yeah. that? And that's what we didn't answer.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So we talk about like kind of pivotal turning points in your career, and like knowing when to leave we were talking about, right? My days at Vayner and knowing when to leave prior to this. Like, when did you know that it was the right time to leave AT&T?
1: Yeah, so I got some really good advice from a recruiter once. They said every job ends one of two ways. It's you showing yourself out or them asking you to go. And it's better to leave through door number one. Like the Tiki Barber. <laughs> exactly right, yeah, like tiki. tiki Barber. I love Tiki Barber. Yeah. right? yeah. And in general, his advice was always leave a little bit too early. Don't stay too late. So the critique of my, my AT&T, my eight years there, I probably stayed too long. It was at a time when they uh, they were paying for my transition from a technical leader into a marketing role. They paid for my master's, my MBA, which I'll forever be grateful for. So, I stayed an extra four years getting my MBA there, which, if you're at a big company, you need to take advantage of all those. Yes. And that opened doors for me. And a year before I left, I had the good fortune of meeting my amazing wife. My wife is a 10, and I'm a 3, which you now know. Um, So, I couldn't be more grateful for the company to give me that. My girlfriend's the same way. I'm a 3, she's a 10, so it's all all good. (laughs) They they should meet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, so I stayed the eight years. I got my MBA, and literally, I think it was a month after I graduated. I, I moved on, and I was appreciative of the time there, but day in, day out, if you said, what did you do to move the business for those eight yeah. years? That's when I realized I wasn't a big company person. I was a part of a great team, so I loved the mentors that I worked under. I met some of the biggest ad agencies on the planet, but I struggled to find like, what was a moment where I really made a trajectory difference in AT&T, and that's the, that's the challenge for me with bigger companies. Yeah. So I left on Bill that that, like, hey, if, you want to, if you're a player on a team, and at the end of the day, that's what we all are, yeah. for a player on a team, I knew I could have had a bigger impact on a smaller team. Yeah. So that started me itching and looking for smaller. Can you
0: companies. talk about the importance of working for like a smaller company at a young age? Because that's something at least I did in my career was like I actually haven't worked for a company over twenty people, uh, ever. Yeah. And uh, I love it because the fact that I feel like my work has an impact on it, right? And I'm not just like a nail in the machine. Yeah. Yeah. Like t- just talk about that and like, would you and why would you recommend being a part of a smaller team?
1: Yeah, I feel like entrepreneurs are having their moment right now. I had the privilege of going and talking at Villanova, where my firstborn goes. I love everything about the school. And I feel like entrepreneurs and smaller businesses are having their moment. I feel like the majority of people coming out have the interest. They want to work for a brand like Tommy John, the disruptor brand. It's really appealing to that segment. Mm -hmm. I do recommend, even if you think you're in small company, the process and the mentorship you get at a big company like an AT&T, like a Citigroup, I do recommend it for at least a few years. Easy to go from that big company to a disruptor. I think it's impossible to go the other way. Yeah. But I, I don't know
0: if I'll, we'll see. Working for like hundreds of people, I mean, it be a culture shock, but yeah.
1: we'll see where it takes me
0: on a future episode yeah. in 20 years. I don't think you're gonna be working for a bank next year when we're hanging out. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Or a community college. <laughs> um, but yeah, talk to me too about like how you, you brought up your wife, like how she played a role in your career and some things that she taught you.
1: Yeah, so uh, Warren Buffett say like the most important decision you'll make in your life is yeah. who you'll marry. Um, and I, I believe in it. I believe in it, full stop. Um, so I'm, I'm not here today with you on the shot in Miami uh, without my wife. So, you know, she was a marketer as well at L'Oreal. She's a much better marketer than I am. Um, but you get you forming that relationship and, and you find someone who's not your peer, but uh, she's the 10, I'm not. So you punch above your weight and she just pushed me to be a better, you know, better man, a better, better marketer. Was the privilege of being a dad to our two kids—it's everything. Know I'm not where I am today without her. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: And what I will get—I want to get back on the career path, but I also like talking about this stuff because yeah. it humanizes you uh, and just everybody. But like, what are some of the lessons that you took from fatherhood into, you know, with the workplace?
1: Yeah, fatherhood—it teaches you a lot. It's humbling, right? You're bringing two lives into the world together and shepherding them and guiding them. I think he, like we all do our best, right? We all guide our children in, a, in the way that we would wanna be led sure. as, as kids and in our company. So I think it's that combination of supporting them, shepherding them and not guiding them with too much of a he- heavy hand. And when you're at that stage in life where you have the, if you have the privilege and if you choose to be a parent, I think it reflects how I am as a manager, and all my successes. I should have started with. We tend to talk about the founders a lot. I'm not where I am today without the teams, because the CMO sets strategy, participates a little bit in the tactical piece of it. But every all of your successes are yep. due to
0: your team. Yeah, T- your team's. You're make, almost like make the coach, right. right, for a sports reference. And that's exactly right. Players are, are doing their thing. Yeah, and what, you're the coach, out. and it only works Making when sure you've got players. They're in the right place. Yeah, you the, that's awesome. Yep. So, so let's get back on the, the career journey. Yeah. What was that first startup that really that you joined and like why? Go with the ladders in okay. 2010. Cool. So what about the ladders made it the right
1: choice for you? And what was so appealing about that startup to have you join? So every startup, by definition, it's a startup hasn't quite made it yet. It's about two things. And venture capitalists will name off three or five things. Like we care about vertical. We care about investment opportunity and a thesis. That's all. Bullshit, in my opinion. It's about two things, it's about people and vision. So the founders of the ladders, it was led by the You're not allowed to curse, by the way. No, I'm just fucking, I'm fucking with you. <laughs> I was like, I'm done. <laughs> um, so you meet some folks, and this was during the bottoming out of the recession in 2008, 2009. They built a site that essentially connected 100K plus talent with the right job, with their gotcha. dream job. So there just wasn't a solution out there for them. And they were they were not just doing job listings, which was already everyone was doing. They were doing certified career coaching mm-hmm. and resume writing for people looking to make that transition. Lateral mobility, vertical mobility. And at a time when there wasn't many jobs in New York City, that was, that was a big, ambitious plan. And I feel really proud about the team that I work with. There's 400 people. I think we were the biggest startup in 2010 in New York City. There's some Business Insider article that calls us the biggest um, startup in New York City. So it was great. I think we peaked at 400 employees. Then like many startups, we imploded. And now those 400 employees, super talented group, heavy, heavy engineer tech ecosystem. The sad part when businesses end is that they end. The good part is that all these talented people go do something else. And that's when your networks start to form. So the guy who sat to the right of me, head of technology, a guy by the name of Nick Rockwell, went on to be the CTO of New York Times. The product guy to my left, Eric Bird, I've worked with multiple times. So. That's my network and that's my New York City ecosystem. And that's when good things happen and your network start to grow. What was
0: the biggest thing that you took away other than the network of working at a, a startup? Yeah, you just,
1: you have to be comfortable doing, right? You're no longer, like the trite title is player coach. And I think it's at a startup, you're way more player than you are coach. And if you're not comfortable with it, if you've been a CMO too long at a bigger company and you all of a sudden have to start running your AdWords or log, logging into, meta ads manager or something like that it gets uncomfortable quick that's the that's the appealing part of it and either makes you or breaks you you're either like this is great and you're like looking at YouTube to figure out stuff that you used to do five years ago or you say hey this isn't right for me and for me I loved it absolutely and when did you get the like CMO itch yeah I really again I don't know I don't know if I ever itch for the title I itch for culture and being part of teams. And I think if you're focused on that, the good, the other stuff will come. The pay will come, the equity will come, the titles will come. I truly don't care about the title. I even hate saying the word CMO. It just sounds douchey when you say it.
0: Can I say (laughs) It's self-aware, yeah, it is. That's, I mean, that's a great point. And
1: so the company implodes, where do you go from there? So after the ladders, um, again, it was truly an implosion. A great company doing great things just didn't work out. And then you just look for other how did, you, how did you deal with that like I feel like I've I've
0: just talked to friends right and listeners about this but like when you get either laid off or the company happens there also is that like mental toll yeah. that it takes especially if you have a family like what's some advice that you would give people who either just got laid off or what are some coping mechanisms that you use to like keep pedaling and keep this thing going
1: yeah it was tough the, the first thing we had to go through is like the execs didn't leave first we had to let go of dozens and dozens of People. so I'd laid off folks before. I never laid off a room of super talented people. That took an emotional toll on me. That was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my career. Walk into a room full of people, and I think some people knew it was coming. Walk into a room full of talented people, some with families, only source of income, and you have to yeah, tell insurance them, and oh. sorry, like you're a great employee, and we appreciate everything you've done. It's just not working, and you have to let someone go. This is probably the worst day of my professional career. But beyond that, what you do, I think you'll go back and again, strong wife, strong family at home, so for me personally, it wasn't as, as painful, but then you take away what you liked about it, and then you put on your filters around what was wrong with the business model, were there some people that you shouldn't have been working with, and you use that just to advance and, and get better and get smarter. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece, uh, the benefit of working for the ladders, I think I met every executive recruiter in the city. and then. The best part of our marketing or the most important skill when it comes to marketing is being a listener. And it's beyond listening. It's curiosity. And I pride myself on being a listener. Executive recruiters I met just taught me, hey, this is what you miss when you jumped into a company like this. This is what you should be looking for next. And they shaped my my next role. And what were you looking for next? Yeah. So, again, I love that disruptor. There's categories that needed to be disrupted. And I go back to people and vision, and I wanted to find that. Uh, and I worked with one recruiter and this is about 2013. And, and for our
0: listeners too, are recruiters are reaching out to you, are you reaching out to them or is it kind of a both of those?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a two-way street, right? Yeah. It's uh, I compare it to when we moved out of the city and looked for homes. There's a lot of real estate agents. There might be two or three that are right for you. Yeah. I remember going with my wife looking for a home and we wanted a Center Hall Colonial and they were saying showing us split levels and I'm like, We said we wanted a Center Hall Colonial and they were like, it's a colonial inspired split level and i'm like what the fuck is that So that? (laughs) so there's a handful that are right for you and i think that same applies to recruiters and i found a few in my tribe that were straight shooters no bullshit, and saying this isn't right for you you're not qualified for this but let me tell you why and this is what's right for you so those are the the folks that I attach myself to and I learn from to this day. After the ladders, right? Like you end up landing that CMO
0: gig, yeah. right? Even though we don't like the word CMO here. But how did that come? Like the recruiter came about it. What about that role made it the right right for you?
1: Yeah, so after the ladders, I met a recruiter, his name's Andrew, I'm still friends with him to this day. It was 2013 and there was a lot of looking at the food space and groceries and online groceries. I know it was 7% of groceries in Europe were online. It was negligible, I think it was sub 1% here in mm-hmm. America. And there was a few groups of kids coming out of HBS and they all wanted to bring meal kits to the US. And this is 2013, mm-hmm. and your first question is like, what's a meal kit? And your second question is, hey, will the US consumer gravitate toward this? So I had, to, I had the privilege of actually meeting multiple founders in the meal kit space, and looking at the, the dynamics of the space, I had no interest in going into it. Uh, then I met the co-founders of Plated, Nick and Josh, and it wasn't about putting you know, a few dollars of food in a box and selling it for 80% margin. Ugh. Their vision was, hey, food in America is broken. I think they said it's fucking broken. Americans are out of shape. We want to bring people together in the kitchen, and we want to make the food ecosystem better. So they had a vision well beyond meal kits. I admired both of them, and I was basically like, where do I sign up? I just wanted to work with these folks, and I felt like the mission was to bring millennials together in the kitchen because the majority of them didn't know how to cook and to make America essentially healthier. And that was a great mission. I signed up for it the day I met them.
0: That's awesome because also it's like profit is purpose in that standpoint of making just Americans healthier. What are you most proud of there that you did?
1: Again, the team, we built out an incredible marketing team. I was probably employee, early, early employee, went from seed stage to series A to two series B. So I'm proud of the team. It was one of the brands I think a lot of brands get into chasing top line revenue too quickly, I oh, won't we'll name the other meal kits that went just public growth, growth at all costs, flamed out. Uh, that kind of hurt the whole category. But the founders and the board were thoughtful here and they wanted to understand the consumer. So we didn't take a lot of time or a lot of money, but we started out by coining the consumer. We called them the evolved eater. And this was people who cared about not just the food that was on their plate, right? It's gotta taste good, you're not gonna eat something. Eh. Yeah. It's like shit but they wanted to know if the food, if there was salmon on the plate, was it sustainably sourced? Was the greens local? Well, beyond the plate, what did it mean to our community, to the earth, and was it was it good for us? And then, and then did it lead to a more healthy lifestyle for us, but a sustainable play for the planet? So that consumer research, it was quick, it was scrappy, but it sort of set the stage and the strategy for Plated for years to come. Absolutely. So that's the brand piece of it. The financial piece of it, I, I believe we raised about 50, $55 million. The business exited to Albertsons for 300 million. Congrats. So the business side of it, thank you. And again, the founders were visionaries. In addition to being a financial success, the founders that plated, started with a deep understanding of the consumer. So they allowed us the time and the space to do this work. So as I was telling you, we called our customer the evolved eater. They cared about what was on the plate, but they looked beyond the plate. Mm-hmm. It was the salmon sustainable? Were yeah. the greens local? And I think through servicing the consumer and getting that piece right led to that financial outcome. And I think a lot of startups are not willing to put in that time on the brand work to get the output that they yeah. want on the financial 100%,
0: because brand, I mean, brand and marketing and sales kind of all tie together, right? But having that foundation and building that from the ground up and just knowing who you are is everything. And that's like what I'm working on now is, you know, tone of voice guys, all that stuff, right? Brand yeah. guidelines, right? Like how we talk, all that stuff, because or else everybody's saying 10, 15 different things and your consumer ends up knowing. I wanna to talk to you about like listening, right? Like you say, knowing the consumer. What are some of the like best exercises that you've used to actually get to know the like, you know, consumer is a buzzword term, but like the humans or people behind it tend to, to you know, incorporate that into your marketing and your messaging.
1: Yeah, a lot of the questions, one of the questions I get often is like, what is the best book for marketers? There's a few, one of my favorites is Made to Stick. So a lot of the marketers coming out are highly quantitative. So they see data and they pull insights out of the data, which is powerful, but it's the stories that stick with us, right? So I don't know if there's a playbook focus groups fell out of style like 10 months ago or 10 10 years ago. Sorry, I
0: always laugh at those Ford ads where they're like, yeah, and they have, you know rearviews windows and child block or whatever and it's like a fake focus group and it says actors on the bottom and I'm like "Uh, come on yeah, come on guys we all read through I mean maybe it's just because I'm in marketing but you were saying
1: yeah so it's again it goes back to curiosity and if you're curious you want to talk to customers you want to talk to customers who are loyalists you want to talk about former customers who are upset with you you need to have that depth of understanding and those one-on-one deep calls with a handful of folks usually unlock a lot so at the Ladders, we had called someone who had lost their job. They were working with us to find their next job. Talked to one SVP of sales. He didn't want his family to know he lost his job. So he was getting in his car and driving around, going to coffee shops for eight hours a day. And then we called him after he got a job. He had written us essentially a love letter thanking us for helping him. And he said, hey, when I got my job, the first two people I called was my mom because my wife didn't know. And then I called my job search advisor at the Ladders. Those stories are, That's they're awesome. not just rewarding, but they also shape your strategy. And the same thing at Bowling Branch, a bedding yeah. company, we talked to folks who had purchased the bedding and were like, hey, what does sustainable and organic mean to you? Uh, and we talked to folks who had severe skin disease and, and they couldn't sleep in bedding with any toxic or chemicals in this, uh, in the sheets. So they had bought Bowling Branch, they had washed them, and, and this mom, who was in New Jersey, was rubbing the sheets against her young child's skin to make sure there wasn't a reaction. Yeah. She was thanking us and the brand and the founders for doing the hard work of making a clean bedding, which really hadn't existed before Ball & came along. So those, those stories I just yeah. told you, yeah. you'll forget all the stats I told you, yeah. but you'll remember those stories. And we need more of those in yeah. our And that's companies. how humanity
0: got, you know, it's all storytelling. It's all storytelling. Wait, I'm curious, too, be, between, like, Poland branch and like we just had the CMO of ADT on right and he was talking about he went from Nissan to McDonald's and I was talking about how oh, that's like an interesting switch right food from cars but he's like the same people Nissan made their cup holders big to fit the McDonald's <laughs> big you know gulp big gulp size things and it's the same thing right the people looking for the jobs are the same people who are buying mattresses right yeah. so I'm, I'm curious too, like when you're talking about the founders vision and like, what is it that you look, what are characteristic traits that you look for in founders when you're going to work for them?
1: Yeah, so some of it is a little squishy. So you meet people and you get a read on them. Like, like good vibes, bad vibes. Yeah, good vibes, bad vibe. And I think one of like my superpowers, I don't have many, but one of them is reading people. Like I met my wife and I was like, man, like there's something special about you. <laughs> and there's you've met folks, like yeah. you meet business people. And I think if they come across as transactional, and I hate the word networking, because it's like, I need something from you, you need something yeah. from me, and it feels transactional. Yeah, the best founders that I meet sit down and they, they start listening. Tell me about yourself, Nick. Where have you come from? Why are you interested in us? They're good listeners, but they don't talk about their business model, they talk about the lives they're changing. So we were talking about Alir Sella at Slice. He started the app to elevate independent pizzerias. He had a vision of bringing big pizza technology into independent pizzerias so they could gain back market share that they had lost to the big pizza chains, which offer shitty pizzas and don't have stories. We're all in the camp of these independent pizzerias. Mm-hmm. Nick and Josh at Plated wanted to make Americans eat better. Scott and Missy Tannen at Fulham Branch wanted to bring ethics into the linen industry, which is notoriously horrific that yeah. came to that. And, you know, Tom and Aaron at Tommy John went into this category and they were like, hey, this, there has to be something more than Haynes and Food of the Loom they disrupted a category that deserved to be disrupted. So when you meet these people, you're like, I don't know if I want to sell underwear for a living. Then you meet these founders, Tom and Aaron, they say, hey, we started doing this. We want to build this dual gender lifestyle brand. And to be a small part of their journey, it's a privilege.
0: That's awesome. I want to talk about just like the CMO tenure is notoriously like short, right? How do you go about like getting a longer leash and like, you know, working
1: the board to show your vision to them? We talk about that a lot. CMO does have the shortest tenure. I think it's 18 to 24 months. I don't think that's a bad thing, right? Cause I do think part of the benefit like of too. being a CMO is you bring an objective viewpoint to the table. It's impossible to be objective at a company you've been at for two to three years, right? It's why, even if you have an in-house creative team, why do we go hire an ad agency that doesn't know anything about your business? They look at it through an objective external lens, and then they're able to tell your story for you. So I don't think it's a bad thing that CMOs have a two-year tenure. I think it's a good thing, and I think it's one of those things that add value. We talked about lateral mobility. What I learned in the food space actually applied to what I applied in the bedding space and what I applied now in the intimate space at Tommy John. So I don't view it as a bad thing.
0: No, that, I like that take because I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, it's it's so hard to stay around and yada in Atlanta, but I agree with it, coming in from like a bird's eye view and being like, hey, we're gonna change this stuff up and yep. see if it
1: sticks. Talking about the duration of the CMO tenure, one of the things that the, the folks that I've worked with and met with that they do best, they move beyond networking, which is transactional, into relationship building. So I'd met the founders of Bola Branch at, on the sideline of a, a soccer match uh, years before I'd worked with them, and we were swapping advice back and forth through each other for three or four years. Then I ultimately took the role there. So there is something about, you know, moving beyond the LinkedIn page, building a relationship offline, a visceral offline relationship with people. Even if you don't want anything or need anything from them, it can pay dividends on the road. There you go. So did you wear Tommy John before Tommy John? I did.
0: I love the product. There you go. What was, so you said the Bowling Branch founders knew the Tommy John team, right? Like how did that gig come up for you? And again, like what about the founder? You touched on it a little bit. But like, what about the founder's vision of Tommy John that just got you absolutely fired up?
1: Yeah, so Bola Branch and Tommy John, they're both based out of the Northeast. I think they're two of the best success stories coming out of the New York area. So the founders are notoriously built on sustainable growth, grow profitably, eat what you sow sort of th- yeah. thing, thinking. And they never wanted to raise VC dollars. They always say like that they don't want to I am a big fan of that. Oh, yeah. I yeah. appreciate it. I'm yeah. actually pro VC, but I appreciate the approach of growing sustainably. I yeah. do think it's a good thing. Or not
0: overly VC, because then it's like a pretty chicken that is just bound to implode.
1: Yeah. The uh, benefit of being in a VC is that you have sister companies, right? Yeah. So your you know, your search CPCs start going up, your AdWords stop working, yeah. your Facebook CPM skyrocket. If you're in a VC company, you have sister companies like, hey, David, what are you saying? Oh, Nick, it's, yeah, we're seeing the same thing or no, it's just you. So you get that benefit. Bolin Branch and Tommy John, incredible success stories. Both grew to over 100 million with little funding. Husband and wife co-founders, a lot of similarities out of the New York area. But as a result of not taking, not being part of the VC community, they were both on a bit of an island. So before I worked with either of them, they sort of found each other and founders share stories with other founders. Absolutely. So That's how these two companies became connected. And I wouldn't be a Tommy John today without that connection.
0: Absolutely. No, I mean, it's all network and power of meeting people and just like vibes and relationships. Yeah. With the Tommy John, what was the Tommy John vision they came to you with that was so disruptive?
1: Yeah. So look, the Tommy John was a 12-year-old business when I met Tom and Aaron and they were already doing this without me, so they were already on their way. Um, and I love the product, I wore it. I was like, I love everything about the product. I met them, I was like, I love the two of you. We just wrapped up a uh, transaction at Bowen Branch and uh, I was looking to actually take some time off. It was the day after my tenure ended at Bowen Branch. So I said, I'm gonna come. I said, I'll work with you guys for free, just give me some product, because I love the underwear so much. Uh, so I consulted for a period of time And I thought it was just like men's underwear and innovation, they were gonna do omni-channel, open some retail stores, expand their wholesale, and continue to grow their direct business. And Tom and Aaron talked about their bigger vision, and they wanted to expand into women's, they had already started that process, um, and essentially become the leader in this this dual gender lifestyle brand, and make it global. So they were really big thinkers, like most great founders, they had a vision which expanded well beyond the men's underwear division. I saw the challenges because the brand tone, you and I talked about it, the brand tone was built on ballsy humor, what I call the bro stack, like reaching guys like us through Barstool Sports, et cetera. And they knew that playbook and that growth stack wouldn't work for the women's division. So there was a meaty brand problem, brand opportunity and also growth opportunity. Uh, and I felt like they were great, and I felt like I was uniquely positioned to help them out. And I was fortunate that they allowed me to be a small part of their journey. And what was like step one when you came in,
0: obviously understanding the customer, but you know what was that first campaign where you're like, oh, like we have something here?
1: So again, incredible team. I think they had a great team. They had hired divisions or they had hired agencies that were built on the men's division solely and couldn't expand. And it had to start with, again, the consumer research. Who are we going after? the new consumer as they extended into women's. And they needed people, internal team. We had an outstanding team. We needed agencies that could keep up with that internal team. So the first thing we had to do quickly was understand the consumer. We did that really quickly. The second step, we evolved the agencies. We had some great agencies that got us to where we needed to be. And we needed new agencies to take that next step, specifically to build out the branding and the growth stack for the women's division. We did that within a year, and uh, then we tip of the spear for us is audio, offline channels and TV as well. So we brought in new creative agencies and we started to tell our story and it resonated. Absolutely. And how do
0: you go around like evaluating agencies too and MediaVise in general, right? Because I feel like you're constantly getting thrown and pitched by different agencies to come in. Like what separated the ones that you chose,
1: yeah. Some of it's experiences, and some of it all goes back to that relationship building and networks. One of the best resources that I have. There's a lot of s- private Slack channels with other CMOs. We don't do it with competitive CMOs. Where we're like, hey, I'm thinking of hiring a creative agency, or I need a new similar to what shop. you had with the VCs, exactly. We network, had with the yeah. VCs. So. I don't think there's any surprises. You're never going to hire an agency or even a person these days, if you don't have a strong back channel, multiple back channels, not references, but true back channels, people that you engage with and you ask them like, what worked, what didn't work. And then you make an assessment and then you meet with them. You pick the agency you want, you go a little bit deeper, you pick the team you want to work with. And when it's a match, it works, it works both ways. The agency benefits from it and the brand gets some
0: benefits yeah yeah absolutely and so what marketing plays have you been super just high on
1: lately or like that you ran and just absolutely delivered for you so it's not new these days but it's a big topic here at brand week in miami is influencer marketing so i started back in 2015 at a footwear brand brought the same agency and similar playbook into Bowling and branch and it's a similar it's the same agency that helped us launch the women's division at Tommy John. So there's a lot of folks doing influencer. I was doing it wrong for multiple years. And then again, I'm, you meet the right agency, the right partner who shows you there's a way to do it. So influencer marketing has been the tip of the spear for us and they've helped build out the women's division for us. It's our number one branding and growth channel for the women's division at Tommy John. So that's the exciting part of it. I think the new part that all CMOs are struggling a little bit with is that We're still used to the days where we have a rock star internal creative team at Tommy John, one of the best I've ever worked with. They're great. When you do influencer marketing, you're giving up a little bit of that control to the influencer. They want to tell their stories to their followers. And I think brands today, and it's easier for a disruptor brand than a legacy brand, brands today have to get comfortable allowing true influencers to tell their brand story for them. And it might not be pixel perfect and you might skirt around that brand strategy issue but it undeniably works and the best brands are doing it they're doing it well these days that's awesome i mean yeah it makes total
0: sense because they i mean they have the platform Uh, it's it's tough to grow you know people don't follow brands they follow people right exactly right have you done anything with the founder story of tommy john and like behind the founders and the founders were off camera
1: yeah we've done a little bit of that and if you met the tommy john founders you'd love them they're articulate, they're good looking, like the whole company loves them. They're, they've just been humble. They put the company ahead of themselves. So they really, when I got there, they didn't have a PR agency. They're mm-hmm. like, it's not about us, it's about the company, which is why you like people like that, yeah. which is why I was like, you, I wanna right, work yeah. for someone like you because they were humble about it. So I think after years of the company begging them, like, hey, you, you're unique, you've got a story to tell, like Tom and Aaron, if you met them, they're super charming. So they're allowing us to tell a little bit of their story now because they've got a great story. It doesn't just, doesn't just help the brand. I think it inspires the founders of tomorrow to hear that story. It's good for employer branding. It's good for the investor community. And we, we need to do more of that.
0: Absolutely. And so what are you most excited about like coming up with Tommy John and uh, just like over the next couple years or months?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot to be excited about. It's a brand, it's growing. Uh, there's a lot of new employees. And, some new employees throughout the ranks, some new leadership employees were really excited for the diversity of thinking. And again, Tom and Aaron always facilitated that. The thing I'm most excited about, everyone's throwing around the term omni-channel and none of us, frankly, know what the fuck we're talking about. Like the consumer, like, hey, like we've got a direct division and we've got a retailer, we've got a wholesale. Like you're a consumer, uh, I buy Nikes on the app, I buy it through stadium goods. I go to Dick's with my kids when I want to see the wall and look at it. The consumer's not in channels, but all these businesses, we're putting ourselves in channels. And I, I, I cringe when I hear omni-channel, but that's the most exciting part. Tommy John, we're up to over 50% unaided awareness. We've got really high consideration rates. So a lot of men, they're like, hey, I know you and I've always wanted to try you. Why haven't you bought us? Oh, I buy all of my underwear in, in retail stores. We have to meet you where you are. So. We don't have to get that percentage exactly right, but we do have to show up in more unique experiential places and figuring out omnichannel, And I don't think that's unique to Tommy John, figuring out omnichannel
0: is what I'm most excited about. Awesome. And last question before we go to
1: our quick question round, which is what, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Ah, good one. I think it's paying attention to the brands on the resume. So we didn't talk about that. I think having a kid at a a great university, we spend so much time worrying about, we spend years worrying about the college that we're going through and the strength of the alumni network and the logo on the sweatshirt. We spend all this time looking at the college, the brand of the college. Then we get out and we take the first or the highest offer that we have. And look, it matters at the end of the day, the brand you work for. I had a halo effect to start out my career because I was at AT AT&T at a time when AT&T was a top 10 brand. Whitney Houston was singing for us. And I think that launched my career. I would want like my daughter and my son after he goes to college. I think the brand that you work for first is just as important as that college that you go to and you have on your LinkedIn profile. It's important. And I think I need to pay more attention to that. Awesome, great advice. Yeah. Love it. We are here with the quick question
0: round presented by Open Fortune, who is providing the ultimate Trojan horse when it comes to advertising, reaching consumers where they feast at 99% of zip codes in their favorite restaurants. And at a moment that matters. So let's open up these cookies, see what our fortune and see if it was, uh, you know, on brand for our our discussion. All right. All right, you going first? I'll, I'll hit it first. It's never too late to start. I love that. And then Northern Arizona University go
1: Lumberjacks. Good things are coming your way this year, amen. Book, Vic- victory bookmaker. So sports book. Sports book. We should make bet. a bet right now. You want to make a bet? Who's going to win the
0: AFC East? And Aaron Rodgers, if you're watching this, I'm sorry, man. It's tough. Get him next year. Feel bad. Feel bad. All right, who do you got? No one circles the wagons like the. Buffalo Bills. Buffalo Bills all the way, baby. Bills Mafia. <laughs> Buffalo. Up. Also, if you, if you win, if the Bills win, I'm going to send you unlimited fortune cookies for life. Done. My and, son's going to love that. And then if the Bills lose, I need a care package from Tom and John. All right. Deal. Done. All right. Now, now we'll get into the lightning round. Oh, that wasn't the lightning round? No. I don't know. <laughs> all right. Person you'd most want to sit down to dinner with, dead or alive? Kobe. Favorite city in the world? New York. New York and Nowhere. Is it okay to sleep with socks on? Hell no. Unless they're Tommy John. Unless they're Tommy John. Favorite rom-com? I don't like rom-com. No rom-coms. Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso. I I love Ted Lasso. I just finished it. Believe. You just finished it? Just finished it. I just watched the whole thing like two weeks ago. That's awesome. Favorite SUNY Cortland grad? Uh, If I can't name one, is that bad? I'm gonna say Dan Bach. (laughs) Walk on. Preferred walk on. Who gained a hundred, he gained 100 pounds, and then he was the captain of Cortland and won some Corticas,
1: so give it a shout-out to Bach. My roommate, Steve, I owe a phone call. Yeah, there you go. Favorite Rutgers graduate? Favorite Rutgers graduate. Who's the running back for Kansas City? Isaiah Pacheco. Pacheco.
0: Yeah, and I'll go with uh, Eric, Eric LeGrand. Ah, uh, great story. Yeah. In 40 years, what will people be nostalgic for? Baseball, because if it doesn't evolve, it's going to go away. And I'm Son. a baseball fan. I'm sad to say that. Yeah. It's tough. Pitchbox not. But the Savannah Bananas, <laughs> he was actually on this podcast uh, oh, no. like 50 episodes ago. You have to go yeah. back and listen Yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean, in love with crazy, crazy story. Worst advice
1: you've ever been given? Dress for the job you want at City uh, In one sentence, how do you sum up the internet? Amazing. People <laughs> focus on the negative and all the downside of it. It's amazing. It's changing our life for the better. Yeah. It's, it's and we can work connecting from people. And I work on the, uh, I'm I'm a glasses half full guy. I love it.
0: Love it. If you could
1: have access to
0: 10 million fortune cookies in any city, what would the message you put in there on, on the, what would the fortune say? Well, I love where you are. And in 10 years, where can we catch you? In 10 years? Yeah, 10 years from now.
1: Well, if you could talk my wife into it, I'll be right here in Miami on this boat.
0: There you go. <laughs> we'll get her out of here. Sweet. Well, thank you, Nick. Awesome, that was awesome, man. man. Thank you. Great to time. meet you. And Great thank you for here. saying yes. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. That awesome. appreciate that. Sweet. All the best.